So we're all addicted. We have a state addiction. But with some people, that is really linked with a substance that is directly creating another state, like smoking, nicotine, alcohol. All these are different states. And depending on which substance you prefer, that says something about where you're stuck with your emotions. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Heal Thyself is here, and I'm so excited for this episode. Before anything, all the love, all the gratitude, all the heartfelt appreciation for you showing up for yourself, right? For opening yourself to this information as always and just helping the ones you love by disseminating this info, bringing them here. This is an empowering movement, and I'm so excited to be doing this for a living. I got a lot of gratitude and joy, especially today. All right, today's show is going to be all about repressed emotions. Of course it's about repressed emotions, right? Uh, there's a fountainhead, there's a root that has to do with so much of physical manifestations of health that have to do. So I'm talking about where it's originating always. That's where I want to be always looking at or the aspect of it, right? All right, so when it comes to the emotional suppression, we gotta talk about where it's repressed in the motion. It's the most mysterious tissue in the whole body. We need to figure out and find out what the heck is the fascia doing? The fascia. The most elusive, the most uh, mysterious, the most we wish we can define what the heck it does in medicine tissue, the fascia. We're going to talk about where the emotions are held and why it's so important and how the fascia is implicated with the nervous system, which is implicated to the immune system. I'm going to talk about where things like autoimmune disease, gut issues, inflammation, obesity, where their originations are coming from and the things we really need to talk about with that. And our special guest, David Manning, this is a guy who taught me emotional release all the way from Germany. We're talking about what are emotions, where they're held, how they express in the body, what happens to our body when they're not expressed. What about shame? What about guilt? What about anger? What about sadness? How about when we have children? How can we be the best parents that we can be for our children to have them grow up in full authenticity and integrity? I'm really excited to get to this special guest interview with David. He is my teacher for Emotion Release, so he's going to be dropping the bombs on emotion. I can't wait. Let's get to this interview. Can emotional suppression be the cause of addiction? Yeah, I mean, addiction, you know, when we think about addiction, we think about, like, substance addiction. We think about a substance. We think about social media, that we, the phone that we can't put away. We think about drinking too much alcohol. But actually, addiction is like a fundamental part of our psyche. It's like the attachment to a state of consciousness, right? We, the life is a journey of states. Everything is a state. You're being born, that's a state. You're growing up, that's different states. You're in school, that's a state. And as an adult, you're living through different states at work, when you come home, when you're at the gym. All of that is states, right? So, but can we flow through all these states with ease? Probably not. So we prefer some states over other states. And that's like the fundamental mechanism that creates, in a sense, addiction. So we're all addicted. We have a state addiction. But with some people, that is really linked with a substance that is directly creating 
another state, like smoking, nicotine, alcohol. All these are different states. And depending on which substance you prefer, that says something about where you're stuck with your emotions. So different types of addictions are connected to different emotional processes. So that's why um, we have to really look at the human condition as a whole, that everything, um, everyone is addicted in some way. You know, skincare isn't just about looking good, right? A lot of us want to look good, but it's not just about looking good. It's about nurturing your skin and being well-balanced from the inside out. And, you know, this world is flooded with a bunch of harsh chemicals that are really insulting our skin, our barrier. And you want something truly effective that is safe. Alitura is one of the best in the game. If you never heard of Alitura, you just think of, you might've seen some uh, black bottles with gold writing on it. It's one of the best. And they're always at health events and people are loving them. And their quality. Alitura Naturals has crafted a serum that is not only safe, but also incredibly effective. Listen, a lot of you ask me where I get my glow from. This is a huge part of the equation. Their gold serum isn't just another skincare product. It's a testament to the power of natural healing and a commitment to holistic health. It uses organic ingredients like jojoba, olive, rosehip oils, and the gold serum is made organically with plant-derived vitamin A, not synthetic stuff, not that nasty stuff that you're getting in a lot of these over-the-counter products, GHKCU, and marine collagen to revitalize your skin. Alitura Naturals has been using the best ingredients in their products for years. They've been pioneering the path for what truly transformed skin should be. So if you're ready to take control of your skin health and experience the pinnacle of natural beauty, I highly recommend checking out Alitura Naturals. For a limited time, you, the Heal Thyself listener, will enjoy the exclusive discount, just the Heal Thyself discount, only for you. That's 20% off of this gold serum. Go to alitura.com and use the code DRG for 20% off. That's A-L-I-T-U-R-A.com and get that 20% discount. It's amazing stuff. I use it every night before bed and I'm telling you, I'm on fire with my skin in a good way. Check it out. All right, let's face it. With all the toxins we're exposed to nowadays with processed foods, pollutants, and even stress, our poor livers have been working overtime. If you've been feeling sluggish, bloated, or just overall rundown, it may be time to give your hardworking liver some extra love and support. That is where Organifi's Liver Detox comes in. This convenient little capsule contains a powerhouse blend of clinically studied superfoods. This convenient little capsule contains a powerhouse blend of clinically studied superfood ingredients specifically designed to remove excess toxins and improve digestion, promote healthier energy levels, and just overall liver health. Now, one of the key ingredients is artichoke leaf extract, which has been clinically proven to help detoxify the liver and digestive tract. Then you got the all-star liver protector. You heard of it, milk thistle, an herb that has been used for centuries to give your liver a big old hug. That's not all. Organifi's liver detox also contains dandelion root, one of my favorite ones of all time, which is loaded with vitamins and minerals to promote healthy liver function and digestion. And finally, Trophalia, an ancient Ayurvedic formula packed with antioxidants that has been traditionally used as a powerful liver tonic, one of my favorite ones too. So whether you're dealing with sluggish digestion, low energy, or just want to give your body's main detox engine a little extra love, Organifi's Liver Detox has your back. Just take one to three capsules at any point during the day to start supporting your liver's natural detox pathways. All of us need to be supporting our liver. If you want to experience the energy boosting, liver supporting effects of this fantastic formula, head to OrganifiShop.com and use the code DRG for 20% off. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I shop.com slash DRG. Something that really just resonated was you said different substances are connected to different states. Yeah. Can you elaborate? What does that mean? 
Yeah, for example, I mean, if you drink a coffee, right, that's a completely different experience than smoking marijuana, right? And um, if you uh, smoke a cigarette, that's different than doing cocaine, for example, right? So all these substances, they have an inherent quality, and the different quality enhances something about them. So some people find cigarettes very calming, right? Very calming for them. But because cigarette and tobacco smoke uh, acts on the lungs, it has to do with the emotional resonance that is connected to the lung, right? The generations before us, now it's not so common actually, but the generations before us, 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, everyone was smoking, at least in Europe. You know, they were smoking teachers in school, they were smoking, they were smoking in bars, they were smoking in the cars. They don't do that no more. But if you look at, you know, the history, why were they all smoking? Why were there, everyone was smoking, having a cigarette. Doctors were saying cigarettes were healthy on TV, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think about now, it's almost hard to imagine that everyone would be smoking like this. But back then, you know, what was that boomer generation um, really struggling with? They were struggling with grief and disconnection, living in a disconnected society that didn't have space for their feelings. And so they were smoking to compensate all the grief and all the heaviness that was in the society. So it was a way of dealing with uh, emotional, collective emotional states. And the same goes for alcohol, for example. Alcohol is a very interesting example. For, um, alcohol um, is a substance that down-regulates and inhibits a very evolved part of the brain, right? So it's almost a regressive substance, meaning we drink it and we're able to tap into older, much older evolutionary uh, parts of ourselves. So we are able to tap into more of a child part of us. But we're also evolutionary tapping more into a mammal part of us because we inhibit our adult evolved centers. If you're walking around, living in a society, having so much responsibility, you know, do it, having to be a good husband, a good wife, a good daughter, a good uh, boss, a good coworker, that's so much pressure, right? And this pressure actually weighs on the society as a whole so much. And alcohol has this incredible ability to lift that responsibility from the person's psyche temporarily. And so what I find, and this is very interesting, is that if you don't have that pressure, alcohol does not really provide relief. So the pleasurable feeling that you're feeling when you drink alcohol, it's actually connected to relieving the pressure that you put on yourself in day-to-day uh, -day life. I don't know if you noticed this, like at some point, alcohol just doesn't give you anything. Yeah, that's because it's not the alcohol that makes you feel good. It's allowing that pressure to be inhibited and lifted off. And if you don't have that pressure, you gain nothing from drinking alcohol because it's toxic as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just having this conversation this morning uh, over coffee. One of my friends opened a bar, or my now friend opened a bar uh, or a liquor store, quote unquote, with mocktails. There's no alcohol in yeah. these drinks, and you've been to it already. And what we are talking about is why do we drink, mm -hmm. right? What parts of us feel uninhibited? And it's to exactly that point, man. It's, it's why do people come from work after a long day of work and mm -hmm. pour alcohol? 
Yeah. Right? It's that part of them that has the social responsibility, right? The yes. parts of them that are completely the opposite of their uninhibited, childlike, yes. open, authentic states where they just feel good in their body. Yeah. Why do people go to bars and drink alcohol, right? Yeah. It's, that, it's that mask that we wear that we don't want to connect or we don't know how to connect or we're not comfortable with our authentic selves. We're scared mm -hmm. to express ourselves how we dress or how we talk. It's Alcohol is wonderful for that, but also cumulatively it leads to cancer. Yeah, exactly. and, and it's inflammatory and it makes you sick and it disrupts mm -hmm. your hormones. So I do notice that. I mean, I haven't drank alcohol in many years, but the last time I did, I, it didn't do much. Mm -hmm. It made me feel tired, if anything. Yeah. But I remember when I used to really drink alcohol, oh my God, I felt so good when I started drinking. Yeah. I felt so talkative and open and I was ready to dance and I was ready to just be playful exactly. and joke around and like whatever I wanted to do. Mm. I felt less serious mm -hmm. and it's because my body needed that. But now it's like, that's not the work. The work is working through it so you don't yeah. ever need alcohol. From a somatic developmental perspective, uh, you have this uh, time period uh, where the child develops, right? In the beginning, you know, you're one years old, uh, two years old. You're not regul. You're not able to regulate your impulses yet. You're just a child. When you when you are sad, you scream. When you're angry, you scream. When you're hungry, you scream. You just scream. Everything is unregulated. Like a baby has sensory information inside of it that it wants to express. It just expresses it. Yeah. There's no filter there, and so it just allows the, 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 the impulse goes in and it goes out and that's then the nervous system restores. So, so um, there isn't any regulation yet. But around the age of three, three and a half, um, the role ego develops. And this role ego is actually exactly what interacts uh, with alcohol. And I think that's, what, that's, the, that's where really all of that begins because essentially before that, you are this person for yourself. You're discovering the world for yourself. There's just you and your discovery of the world. Mm -hmm. But then, all of a the sudden, there's this switch, there's this rift. And all of a sudden, it's about who am I for the world? So, not what is the world for me, but who am I for the world? What, the, what do my teachers expect of me? What do my parents expect of me? What, who does the world need me to be? You know, like... Can I be my authentic self or do I have to slip into another version that is expected of me, right? And that's that key moment where that role ego develops. So essentially a role self, you're in a part of your identity that you've created, that you're not aware of, you only created to fulfill the needs of the world. And some people, they live in the role ego, you know? If you're listening and you feel like you're just walking around, you don't know who you are, you know, and there's this feeling of, I never met myself. That's because there's people going 10 years, 20 years, become, like I said, the good wife, the good husband, the, the, the good boss, the good coworker, and then they reach all their goals that they had in their role ego. They reach all of them, you know, they get the promotion, they get the, the car, they get the house, and then they feel absolutely empty, absolutely empty. And the reason that is, is because they played through that identity. They played through the ideas of what the parents thought they should be like, and they reached the end of that game, so to say. And 
there's different names for what that is called. So when you're doing that in work, it's called burnout, right? Um, if you're doing it for 30, 40 years, it's called midlife crisis, right? Now it's a quarter-life crisis because this process is accelerating and people are seeing through the emptiness of this projection of what a happy life should look like and what a happy self would be. And so you reach that beautiful point, which is so necessary in a society, this, uh, this quarter-life crisis, where you notice that this mask, this, these clothes that I've been wearing, there's something underneath it. I want to open it. And there the authentic self emerges again. And the authentic self is that part that is, you know, what we call the inner child. You know, that, that, that little child that was running around on the playground, you know, shaking and ha being happy, being alive. And where's that part now? You know, where, where does it live? It's still there. It's just been shut down, you know? Mm. And I know that resonates with so many people viewing and listening uh, because it's true. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of us, I've seen it. I mean, I've worked with clients who've had tremendous success. Mm -hmm. They are miserable. Miserable. Has, have reached every American dream they could possibly think about, from family to wealth, multiple houses. They are miserable. And you feel it inside. And it's a beautiful way that you put it. They just fulfilled what they thought they should be. You know? And there's such an absence of authenticity. Now, you mentioned that inner child, the part that's within all of us. Mm -hmm. Let's say I, pull, I have a button, and I push the button, and the whole world got activated. Role ego just deflated. Inner child came back to the surface. What would that look like? Would it be full-grown men on the monkey bars, uh, women playing you know, hopscotch, joking around? How, as we, uh, this is the problem. We as adults go, we're in an adult society. I can't be a kid. I have to mm -hmm. go to work. Yeah. If I'm mad, I can't throw a tantrum at work. I'm going to get fired. How does that look in an adult body? Because it's very rare to see. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, that's a beautiful picture that you painted, like running around, everyone happy. Um, there's an example, actually, where you see some of that playing out. So there's a particularly strong role ego in countries like Japan and other Asian countries where you see a really strong uh, family bond. Stronger the family bond, the stronger the role ego, right? Because your role in the family is what you identify with, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you see is that the children that grow up there, they quickly get pushed into this role. And they're really, really good at just accepting that as their identity. That's why they're so well at performing everything. They can be that good boy. They all, all these Asian countries, they have so many good little boys, good little girls, because they're so good at uh, um, complying to that role ego self. And so in that moment, what, what, um, so what you see in those countries a lot is that you have a lot of like childlike aspects spread around. Like in, 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 in Japan, you have like these like really funny hats and like soaps with like kittens on and like adult people having like really childlike um, toys and, and products. And that is actually probably an expression because they have repressed their inner child so much that it's coming out in that way. So I would say that if we to take away the role ego, you know, everyone would be just a child. It was probably the opposite because the role ego, what we can also call the inner adult, because that's what we never talk about. We always talk about the inner child. We don't talk about the inner adult. The inner adult is not meant to go away. You need your developed 
part of your of your psyche and your brain. You need that part to function, right? If you just take that away, you, it gets very regressive. And that's what you see when people drink a lot in the collective. They get very regressive. They get very destructive even. So it's not about becoming a child again. It's learning that the inner adult can hold hands with the child instead of inner adult just dominating your psyche and taking responsibility over everything, being super dry, joyless, lifeless, always connected to some kind of responsibility, but instead then developing that relationship that when you need to function, you can bust it out, you can function, you can work hard, you can get that promotion. But then when you're home and you're with your wife, you can be that playful again you know you can be that child again so the key word here is playfulness right mm -hmm. that's developing a relationship to that part and usually before you you get to the playful part you have to work through the abandonment of that inner child that that regressive part right and that is usually connected to sadness connected to anger to all those emotions that we don't didn't allow ourselves to feel because when that little child you know, that was so happy and so playful and so joyful, got put into school, into a system that had to function, an overregulated society that told it, you cannot be this active and, and, and happy and full of life. So what, it, what has that child been told? It's been told, you need to sit down, you need to shut up, stop moving. And that's what happened. And so that part has been shut down and it still lives inside of us. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said, man, because I think how much tension we're holding, and I got a vision of a, just a child pushing, mm. pushing, hey, remember me. In many ways, I wonder if just the tension that people feel or those emotions that keep coming up are just a, a byproduct of signals from, hey, I'm still here type situations going on in the body where, you know, Here's an opportunity to be, for me to be playful, but oh no, I can't be playful here. This is, and then I, th I thought about when you're talking, why Burning Man is so popular and famous. These are people who are in their role ego all the time or mm. most of the time, and then once a year, or maybe a few times a year, but especially in Burning Man, go, let go, dancing, riding in bikes, coloring with their hands, yes. painting, painting faces. This is the child finally coming out, and this is why people, it's not even about the Burning Man, it's the opportunity, the space that Burning Man creates for you. But the thing is, like you were saying, you can do this when you get home with your wife or mm -hmm. your partner. So the key you're saying is start working through those emotions, of course, and we'll go into some of that, mm -hmm. but the playfulness, keeping in mind, can I be playful in this situation? Can I allow playfulness? Exactly, and, and when you see extremes, wherever you see extremes you know, in the world, like that's an extreme, like you work hard five times a week and then all of a sudden you turn to a little child and, 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 and take so many drugs and, and, and be colorful. That's an extreme and, ex and extremes are always trauma responses. So it shows us that that is the opposite of integration, you know? Um, and that really, that really shows us that there is work to be done. You know, some people, they, they turn super regressive at some points. You know, you, you know there's um, a, a lot of friends of mine make this experience, like women who are uh, dating other men, uh, that there's these super playful men who are like inner children, like, like they are just like these 
adventure type personalities, like uh, Peter Pan type mm. personality. And um, they're just taking on this like joyride. But as soon as it comes to responsibility, all of a sudden there's this inner, there's this little child that just can't handle any responsibility, mm. you know, and is unable to tap into like, you know, into being responsibility. And this is like, this is the type of man that, you know, gets women pregnant, but can't show up as a father and will always be that elusive father that's so like has this cool motorbike and plays basketball and tells jokes and this cool dad, but that cannot take responsibility and starts becoming a surf teacher or yoga teacher and does that their entire life. Because mm -hmm. that's like the opposite end of the spectrum now, right? That's like the person being stuck in that child unable to tap into the responsibility of being an adult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the dichotomy of, yeah. of living, exactly. right? And um, unfortunately, most of us are in the role ego-responsible adult because you see, especially here in America, how uptight a lot of the society is. You can feel the let's do, let's do, let's get things done, let's be more responsible, let's mm -hmm. grow this, be this, you know, not even be this, do this. Um, and the playfulness comes in the state of like, really, I can be. Playful yeah. being, right? Being with your body, being with your joy, being with all those emotions. Now you mentioned that child. There are some emotions that are blocking mm -hmm. or that need to be felt before that starts really authentically or in dignity, as you say, mm -hmm. comes unfolded. First of all, why are emotions held in the body? What happens? When does it happen? How does it happen? You know, um, and is there, let's say I never heard about this, but um, I have a therapist mm -hmm. and we go, we talk every week and we talk about emotions and I cry. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that allow me to express emotions? When are emotions being held in the body? Why are emotions being held yeah. first and foremost? And then the way that we as a collective see the best way to deal with mental and emotional mm -hmm. is through therapy. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah, and it starts with that young period, right? When the child is screaming and it's sad, it's angry, it can just scream, it can just express. The emotion goes in, it goes out, no problem, right? As the child gets older, it learns to develop containment to some degree. It can say, I'm not going to cry now, and I can somehow regulate and change, you know, how to deal with that emotion. It's not an in and out uh, situation anymore. So it's good there's then some there's it's good that we have the ability to contain emotions. It's good that we have defenses that allow us to deal with all the content that is in our psyche, all the repressed stuff that we couldn't feel. It's good that we have that. But um, the problem is that it turns it turned to a disconnection again, right? Now we have a disconnection with release again. We cannot access that child that can just go with the emotion in and out. We now only can hold and hold and hold. And that festers over years and years and years. And so what's interesting about this is that the, our muscles play a huge role. That's one layer there. So muscles, organs, and fascia are the three types of systems we need to look at when we talk about what is important about emotional repression. So we already know like things like stress. Stress causes chronic disease. You know this, you talk about this all the time, you know. 70% um, of the people 
who die die of lifestyle-related diseases, right? Lifestyle-related diseases with a, the most powerful factor is stress. And stress and emotions is essentially the same thing. Um, what we have to understand is like, we don't make that distinction, that doctors don't make that distinction that much, what kind of stress is causing what reaction? Because stress has a frequency. So it has a certain type of aspect that stress resonates with. So being late to a job, running late, and you know you have your coffee and, and, and you're super stressed, that's not the same type of stress as getting your heart broken. Doing public speaking is not the same type of stress as getting a fight with your mom, right? These are all different types of frequencies of stress. And the stress corresponds with different regions in the body, in the muscle, fascial, and the organ systems. You know, the muscles is the most concrete. You know, if you, if you, I worked as a musculoskeletal therapist, so you always have people super tight, right? Mm -hmm. Super tight, muscles tight, tensioned, and they're like, can you massage me here, right? Mm -hmm. Can you massage, and they always point here, can you massage me in this place, the typical place? And then you, you push at a knot. You have this muscle knots in the body. And you push in it and say, oh, you always find the right spots in my body. You always find, how do you know um, where to push uh, my muscles? It's funny because it's actually connected to one specific type of muscle. It's always the same. It's the tonic muscles. So we have two types of muscles, the phasic muscles and the tonic muscles. So the phasic muscles are kind of the sprinter muscles. They have, they kind of, um, they're good at performing uh, exercises for a short period of time and then they go tired. Those are the muscles you work out in the gym, right? But then you have the tonic muscles which uh, have a prolonged contraction. So they stay tight for days and weeks because they're postural muscles, structure-giving muscles that help you to stay upright. Like the jaw muscle is one, the trapezius is one, so many others in the body, the psoas muscle is one of those. And so they don't know how to relax. Those muscles don't know how to relax. And those are the muscles that people are, that are chronically stressed have to deal with all the time. And those muscles, because they're so connected to that stress response, they are the muscles that hold in the part that we couldn't feel before we got stressed. So stress is simply the reaction of fear in our body that is repressing an emotion, a feeling, a state. It's a, it's a way to shift a state. Our body has the power to regulate the intensity of our lift experience. And so it contracts and it holds on in the tonic muscles. Right? So, but when you talk with a psychotherapist and you're, you're in front of this psychotherapist and you start having conversations, when does he address your muscles? When is the fascial and muscular system addressed during that session? It's not addressed, right? And talking can bring up emotions. It's, it's asking good questions can help you to process and especially understand yourself better from a cognitive level. But does it address the deep-held, repressed emotional energy that's within the fascial and muscular system? 
It's been a long time since I promoted a coffee because there's not that many good coffee brands. We got one of the best ones now on Heal Thyself. Are you ready to elevate your coffee game? And experience a brew that's not only delicious, but it's also health focused. Let me introduce you to Purity Coffee. You heard me review them in one of my first ever coffee reviews as one of the best, and then my second ever one as one of the best. And it's one of the best still. It's an ultimate choice for coffee lovers who, who prioritize taste as well as well being. I'm going to tell you what makes Purity Coffee stand out from the crowd. Every step in that process is rooted in health focused principles backed by solid, scientific, research based, rigorous testing. They use the finest specialty grade organic Arabica beans and then move on to small batch roasting, ensuring that each cup meets the highest standards of quality. But what really sets Purity Coffee apart from all the other coffee brands is their dedication, is my favorite, is their dedication to purity and safety. Their beans undergo third-party testing to ensure they're free of pesticides, toxins, and harmful mycotoxins, those pesky substances that can wreak havoc on your health, causing issues like liver and kidney damage, digestive problems, brain fog, and fatigue. Purity Coffee also has some of the highest antioxidant capacity, and this is important because we have to understand coffee is actually really good for us when we're getting quality coffee. And the reason it's good for us and ensures so many benefits, especially heart health, is because of its antioxidant capacity. Purity has one of the highest antioxidants that you're going to find in coffee, giving you a powerful dose of healthy boosting compounds with every sip. Purity Coffee is grown on regenerative organic farms that prioritize soil health, animal welfare, and community well-being. They have certifications by USDA Organic, Rainforest Alliance, and Smithsonian Bird Friendly. You can also trust Purity Coffee is not only good for you, but also good for the planet. They have a range of roasts from their light medium roast with sweet fruity notes and their dark roast with rich bold taste. So to try out one of my favorite coffees in existence and one that I recommend to everyone still to this day, I've been doing it for years, is Purity Coffee. Go to puritycoffee.com and use the code DRG for 30% off of your first purchase. That is P-U-R-I-T-Y-C-O-F-F-E-E.com and use the code DRG for 30% off of your order. You know, living a long life is great. It is. We all want to live longer. But what's even better is living those years in good health, right? Free of the chronic diseases and the ailments. Unfortunately for many, the gap between lifespan and health span is way too wide. And we spent our last years ill, not enjoying our life to the fullest. And that's why I'm always into research-based products, quality supplements that are coming out to you, the highest, the best of the best, some of the best rigorously tested supplements. And one of my favorite companies across the board is Momentus. And they have two that I use every single day, creatine and collagen. These are the two powerhouses at work. I've been opened and I've been working out more four times a week. I'm lifting heavy weights and these are staples. And, I, and not just me, I think everyone should be out working out, building muscle, staples to muscle repair and muscle growth. But what sets Momentus apart from the rest is its clinically researched formulas. For the collagen, it delivers 15 grams of collagen, supporting your body in various ways. And it's not just one type of collagen, it's all the types of collagen, right? A lot of companies just have one type of collagen. You want all the types of your body's absorbing and utilizing this collagen the way you desire the body to use it. But boy, oh boy, the gold standard for working out, if you're not on this, you don't even have to be working out. You can use it for your brain. It's creatine. Momentous creatine is fantastic. There's no fillers, no additive, pure, effective ingredients you can trust. Trust is everything when it comes to supplements. Momentous third-party test. There's no surprises. What you see on the package is what you get. So if you're like me, you want to feel your body with the best of the best, go to livemomentous.com and use the code DRG for 15% off of creatine and collagen and all their top-notch products. That is L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com with the code DRG for your discount from the cognitive standpoint and our body responding and really what stress is. We hear stress so much and we know what it feels like to be stressed, but what is really stress? So you're saying 
Stress is simply the fear response to an emotion that we don't want to feel. Yes. So fear is the fundamental, is, is, is the same as stress. Mm -hmm. So stress and fear is the same thing. Fear is the lift experience of stress. We can be stressed and not be fearful, you, you might say. But if you're in touch with your body as you're stressed, you will feel that your body is in fear. So fear, in that sense, is almost, we don't address it as an emotion. It's the fundamental force pushing everything down, holding everything back. And that's what the body is reacting to, right? But what's being held back is an emotion. Usually sadness, anger, sexuality, or aggression. Aggression is not anger. It's something different. I will explain it to you. It's essentially like a, um, it's a fundamental type uh, life force. So aggressio is the way of how we approach one another. It's a force that is needed in, that is active in mammals. That, you know, for example, if, if a fox wants to um, eat a chicken, is it going to be angry at the chicken? Does it need to be angry to eat the chicken? Or is it just like, Rawr! and that's the aggressive part. It's a, it's a part within us that we all have as mammals. Sexuality goes with it because both of these forces we need to survive. And then the emotions, sadness and anger are the core emotions that we really hold back in our system. And the rest of that, so we have guilt, shame, uh, fear, those are more trauma energies. Those are actually the, the, the lift experience of holding back emotions. Mm -hmm. oh, and a lot of us are living in all of those because essentially so many of us are holding back our mm -hmm. emotions. So there's always, I feel, an element of guilt or shame or fear. Um, I know from doing the work that you, know, you had taught me to do, uh, oh my God, I would say eight, nine out of 10 people have anger come up. Mm -hmm. Anger is everywhere. This morning, it was last night, the night, it's every single person that I see has an element of anger. But before we get into the fascia, which we, we love talking about, uh, I want to go back to the aggression and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Here's something that I see people holding back all the time. I, I feel like there's sadness, anger, aggression, and sexuality repression in every single person. Mm -hmm. But, okay, not everyone is going to hunt and kill a, a moose, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so, but what is, uh, is aggression our primal state? Is it the state that can kill? Is it the state that is within all of us as mammals? Yeah, I would just, I would even go much more fundamental. Aggression is the fundamental force that is going towards what you need. So it's like you need food. If you don't have aggression, there's no motivation to get up. If you don't, if you want that job, there's no motivation to go after that. So people without aggression, like depressed people, for example, then they're holding back aggression, holding back of that primal life force in themselves. There's lacking that motivation to go after what they need, right? So it's 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 not understood as the same aggression you would think of with anger. Right. It's something very fundamental, something very healthy that we need that needs to be in balance in our system. And sexuality and aggression are our counterparts in, in some sense, just like sadness and anger are con counterparts. So what you'll find, and this is something you found as well in sessions, is that underneath sadness, many times, there's a lot of anger, right? 
And the same thing with anger. Underneath anger, there's a lot of sadness. And one of those reasons is that a lot of people have one go-to emotion that they feel comfortable that they can express. This is because they're living in an environment, they were raised in an environment, where some aspects of their personality were accepted and some were not accepted. So let's say the emotion and anger was, was okay, people were yelling uh, in the household, or vulnerability was not allowed. So people, um, um, so and vulnerability was not allowed. So sadness was not allowed, crying was not okay. You heard this as a man, right? You, you hear this all the time, you know, your big boys don't cry, you know, stop mm -hmm. crying, you know, you're not a pussy, you know, yeah, yeah. just like that. So what does that do? What, what impulse does that send to that child? It sends to the child, I cannot be sad. Sadness is not safe. I'm not accepted with sadness. And so when, so what happens is then what is called sublimation, where we re replace one behavior or one need with something more acceptable. So that child thinks it's more acceptable to be angry. So whenever it's sad, it starts getting angry instead of sad. But maybe that person is actually sad. And this is the kind of people you find, you know, um, always getting angry, always getting angry. Those people who are like, oh, always getting angry, they're actually sad. You need to work on, on sadness with them. And then you have the people who are always, always, always sad and they start crying, you know, they have, they're, 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 they're stressed. And like, I, I had to, I started crying. It was, it was just so much and they feel shame. They start crying. They feel it's overwhelmed if they start crying. They're not actually sad. Mm -hmm. Usually they have held back anger and they feel helpless. They need that anger to actually feel empowered again. Right. And which is exactly what I've seen. I, I actually see more sadness with anger under. Mm -hmm. And to feel their uh, power to be able to express that anger is one of the most beautiful things I see. Um, and I see a lot of women, and a lot of women aren't, they're more comfortable showing sadness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women are very disconnected from their anger. But it's such a beautiful moment when the tears stop and then the anger starts coming. And I was like, whoa, your energy's shifting. Here's the breathing. Here's the red face. Here's the fist. Ah, here we go. Mm. And then that starts unfolding and seeing them come back to their power and their anger and their voice. I put up a post the other day and it was the woman in her anger is a woman in her power, right? Because she's reconnecting to her power, to her truth, where it is. Yeah. And it's just incredible to see that. But I see a lot of men angry who come yes. in who are so disconnected from sadness and then seeing a man break down in tears, right? To yeah. really feel vulnerable again. Holy moly, it's so, so powerful, it's mm -hmm. beautiful. So let's get into the sexuality piece, okay? Where in the body is the sexuality first and foremost? And what does the repression of our sexual selves look like in men and women? Well, this is an interesting question because, you know, sexuality is actually the easiest affect to pinpoint, right? Emotions are affects, right? And when you tell people emotions store in a particular part of the body, they go, what do you mean? And like, when you cry, tears flow, right? It's not oozing out your ears, you know? It's not on your foot. It has a specific place that it's expressing, right? And then I say, okay, when you, when you get aroused, where do you feel arousal? Well, in one particular part of the body. Exactly. Emotions have different locations. Affects right. show up in different parts of the body. And sexuality, of course, highly connected with our 
genitals, you know, and holding back sexuality is is big. So sexuality, we we, we think of always think of sex. Immediately we jump to, oh yeah, sex. But sexuality is so much more. It's sexual identity and the primal sexual identity that we have, right? I'm not talking about uh, progressive liberal ideas about this. I'm talking about a, a kind of biological force that is within us that wants to unfold. That's actually kind of a contradiction to what we hear a lot in the media nowadays. So the sexual force, our sexual primary impulse, they want to un unfold. You know, without tapping into your sexual sexualities or sexual energy, you cannot unfold as a full man standing here because your hip is holding back, contracting those deep hip organs. So you have the rectum, you have the bladder, you have, uh, as a man, the prostate, as a woman, the womb that are contracting the fascia, actually holding down those impulses. And if you're a woman, you learn how to be a woman from who? From your mother. If you're a man, you learn how to be a man from your dad. And so the reason why we are so estranged from our own sexuality and what it means to grow into our full sexual identity is because we lacking those role models in our lives that they simply weren't there. So we're unable to tap into our sexual potential. We're unable to tap into the polarity that our sexuality creates, right? When, when a man is standing in his full manhood, that is powerful, that is beautiful, that is attractive. People viscerally react to a powerful man. And I'm not talking about a man that's dominating or aggressive, like the word aggressive we use, uh, but I'm talking about someone who's integrated within himself, his needs, and he knows what he wants, and he feels a sexual desire, and is not creepily trying to, you know, um, get it by not addressing it directly, by, for example, doing things to get something from a woman, but he knows what he wants, he knows his, he has self-respect, he has dignity. Same for a woman. When we show up with our needs, our sexuality, which is such a primal part, right? It's an animal that is living inside of us. And it's, it's really, our humanity has layers, you know? Like we talked about the inner adult, the inner child, the inner animal, these are all layers. We come from, you know, you're not 30 years old, 36 years old. You are part of a billions of years old process, which is evolution. So this technology that this body is, that is sitting right here, is billions of years old. And that means you have different layers to this technology. And part of those layers are primal and animalistic. And another part of that layer is very developed and very, um, very cognitive. Right? But they all exist here. And when we pretend that we're not monkeys, but we're something better, sophisticated, putting on clothes, you know, putting on glasses, doing fancy things, high value productions and all of that, and we forget that we're also animals, we run into trouble. All of a sudden, this part of us that is down here that's reacting 
to attraction, to women, to men, that part isn't getting properly addressed and isn't getting integrated. And so what happens is that when we don't integrate our instincts, that's what we call sexuality and aggressions, our instincts, our animal nature has instincts. These instincts, when they're not integrated, there is a force, an emotional energy movement, you could say, that is not allowing that to integrate. When we don't feel that integration, that's called guilt. We feel guilt for our unintegrated instincts. When we do something that was not okay, that, we, that people don't think is okay or we feel guilty about, that's when we feel guilt, but it's because we feel guilt for a part of us that is running the show, our desires running the show, our instincts running the show that haven't been integrated because we haven't, made, haven't become aware of them. Mm. That's very powerful here. Because the way that you frame guilt makes so much more sense and intuitively is so much understand, more understandable because how a child or a teenager can feel if they're instinctually driven to do something, chastised for it, and then that emotion is like, I'm expressing my only way that I know, my instincts, and now that's wrong. Yeah. How much that feels, you the guilt that you acted that way, or the guilt that that came out. And I can't imagine the amount of energy that instincts have and how much energy it takes to repress it. Mm -hmm. And to me, you, you look, I mean, I've, I've, I've worked so much in the physical part of medicine and studied so much of it and put, applied it to patients, even in, from a holistic standpoint. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, why shouldn't I question if this formation of this disease in this part of the body doesn't have to do with just exactly that, the repression of the emotion, the energy, that it takes to repress the emotion and the energy of that emotion repressed. Mm -hmm. I wonder to myself, and I would love for a study to be ran, but you cannot quantify emotions. I would love for a study to be, do men who have repressed sexual instincts, feeling guilt and shame, have more prostate cancer versus those who don't? I wonder. It's, yeah. it's a fair question. Have more bladder cancer than those who don't, right? Um, so how do we start for people viewing and listening, right? And they go, I, I, I don't have access to emotional release right now. I want to do it. How do we start moving that sexual energy? Is there a way? Is there things we can do, practices that we can have to really start activating that? Maybe thoughts that, or maybe if I feel like doing this, can I tell myself something? Is there just anything that you can advise us how to tap into that? Well, if you're, I mean, there's a whole um, path in India, specifically, you could say, designed for the integration of sexuality. I mean, many people have heard about Tantra, right? There's a lot of ways that we can begin this sexual deconditioning process by uh, becoming aware of our own body. So becoming more embodied in ourselves and learning to expand that energy that is within us because I would say there's like two types of, of, of sexuality we can experience. 
One is a bound sexuality and one is a boundless sexuality. This is for every emotional energy in the body. There's a bound version, which is a blockage, and there's a free-flowing version of it. So a repressed emotion is a bound emotion. It's bound in the body. Literally, the fascia are contracting this, this part of the body. And being bound in an emotion means that this emotion is also only tied to a specific activity or a specific person. You know, there is a very typical example of what happens when we have a bound sexuality. So um, there's these triggers um, that we call crushing on someone, right? When we crush on someone, that's a, an a example of an unintegrated sexual impulse that is bound to a specific person, to a specific trigger. And we start to desire all of this, all of the desire that has been withheld, that we didn't allow ourselves. We need to be a good boy. You know, we didn't, we, did, we weren't, weren't allowed to be a sexual being. It's not allowed in my family to be a sexual being. So then what happens is that you don't identify with it. The sexuality is put into the shadow and it only comes out in specific moments. And, but when it comes out, it bursts out like a laser, right? That's the, the bound version, is that it's so bound that it's hard to regulate. When you're in love, when you're crushing, and love and crushing are two different things, but when you're crushing on someone, it's so hard to regulate. You know, do you know that feeling mm. when you're like thinking about this person and you're trying mm. to go to sleep and you're like, did they write me or did this happen or this happen? You know, or if you are um, so repressed in your sexuality that you're always horny as soon as this type of man or type of woman shows up and you're just like, you can't help yourself, you just want to indulge. And that just means you have a hard time regulating this particular affect. That's a sign that this particular affect, sexuality, is so repressed that you have no relationship with it. You're unable to relate to this and healthily enact with it. So that's bound in the body and then activates super quickly, but nothing is regulating it. And so what happens, what's important there is to open that up, allow space for that to be there, and creating space in our awareness, using the breath, using moments of stillness to actually sense that affect and to allow it to expand in the body. The moment we expand it, we liberate a repressed emotional force into an expansive, boundless version of free life force, free affects that can flow through the body that aren't bound to a particular person, but are accessed just by our intention. We become free. Now we don't have to think about that person anymore. Now that, that sexual desire doesn't have to overcome us. Mm. And, so, and, and, and we, ha- we don't have to watch that porno movie because we can all of a sudden regulate that affect and we can create pleasure by will, by deciding to create and tap into that emotional energy. And it's incredible to hear that that even exists, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people viewing or listening goes, oh yeah, that's activated by my partner. Or oh yeah, that's activated through porn. Right? Oh, yeah, that's activated um, sometimes when I do breath work or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But 
to, to think that we can tap into it and expand it and really feel, be the own autonomous people of our own sexual connection, mm-hmm. right? Um, independent of someone activating it within us mm-hmm. is really powerful. And understanding that sexual energy is powerful in itself. It is the life force that creates everything. So for us, viewing or listening, it would behoove us to step into this, you know, uh, independent of religion, independent of cultural norms, right? Can we just tap into our sexuality and not see it as evil? Mm -hmm. Can we tap into our sexuality and not see it as taboo? Um, One of the things I'd love for people to do is to tap into their sexuality. You know, I talk to a lot of women after these releases, and I'm telling them, hey, make a playlist. Put on 50 songs, even 20. And the first 10 seconds, if you don't feel any part of you, feel sexy, feel drawn to it, feel like you want to move to it, don't put it on. And I have them build this playlist, and then I have them dance, but from the womb, activating the hips. Don't think about how you're going to dance. Let your womb and hips move it. You know, just so these women who all their life have had their zip-ups all the way right under their chin, right, and all on their buttons all the way up to the top of their neck can just allow for themselves to start coming into contact with the animalistic part of them, the mm. part of them that is boundless, that is sexual, that is a woman, that is feminine. My God, seeing these transformation in women, just coming back to their sexual selves is incredible because mm. you see the power within them. I tell them, you've mastered this part of your sexuality or you've connected back to it. The moment you can be in the middle of church, stand up in the middle of the sermon and say, I'm a sexual being and I'm not ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. The moment they can stand up and say that with all of their power and authenticity is the moment they go, shit, I'm, that, I'm here. Mm-hmm. The part of me is here and I've accessed it. And man, like what a beautiful thing to see in that in people. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, I think about how many people struggle with connecting back to their sexuality. Yeah, and that really shows, again, like mastering our emotions is mastering life through allowing emotions to be there and being able to regulate our emotions and have a relationship with the whole human spectrum. You know, all the parts that are here, the ugly parts, the wild parts, the vulnerable parts, the aggressive parts, the powerful parts, the loud parts, the shining parts. That is a spectrum in our nervous system, right? And this nervous system, the goal of healing trauma, for example, is that we want a flexible nervous system, a nervous system that can host all these different versions of us that we are, you know, and that once we re- relate to those emotions and to, to sexuality in that new way, that is empowering because we can, we can tap into it by will. And that happens every single time we, we start to work with an emotion. We allow an emotion to be there. We unlock that capacity in our nervous system to host that particular type of affect. That's when we can really tap into life. Because we're no longer addicted to states. Because states have a certain emotional frequency. A state is created by an emotion. Like how I feel now has an emotion. How you feel at work has an emotion. Uh, What you like to eat 
you eat it because the way you feel. All of these are different states. And when you have the flexibility to tap into your emotional range, you're not locked into one particular state. So you can flow through life mm. much, much more freely. Mm. And that, what is more empowering than that? So mastering your emotions is mastering life. Mm -hmm. is mastering your emotions is power. And mastering your emotions is also self-confidence. Because in that moment that you don't push away other parts of yourself, the part that are vulnerable and sad and ugly and all of that, those are the parts that you feel shame for. And that, that's essentially the feeling of not being insecure. So expressing emotions liberates insecurity, liberates ourselves, And we broaden the range of who we are. We increase the spectrum of our own humanity. And that allows us to be self-confident in all of our versions that we are. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to myself, how much disease can live in that state? Right? Or how much ease in our life do we allow in mm -hmm. to not in, let in disease, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't go to say you ain't going to get bit by a mosquito and develop malaria, but it does mean that your body, at the very least, is the most resilient it can ever be to fight that infection, right? Because all those resources that are holding back those emotions are liberated, mm -hmm. right? You're using all that energy for your life, for your healing. Um, It's just so fascinating to me, and this is why I'm such a big proponent, as you know. Mm -hmm. One thing that really fascinated me that you talked about once was um, the development of children, right? And how a lot of these expressions of how we phenotypically, meaning how we appear to the world, is in many ways an expression of emotions at a young age. You were talking about in utero, in utero, you were talking about the child who was neglected, you were talking about the child that is, is, feels autonomous and can walk away. For all of the moms and dads out here who are viewing and listening, is, is there a way that we can just understand our children early on and what they're expressing and, and in many ways how we can be the best parents? Because it can mm -hmm. feel really overwhelming for me. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, okay, if we're talking about mom and dad, how we see masculine, how we see feminine, all these traumas happening when we're young, how the heck am I going to be a parent? Yeah. Uh, is there any way you can speak to this in the development and, and, and being a parent? Yeah, I think the, the key is human connection, you know? And we think of human connection as a thing um, that is there or not there. But human connection is a spectrum, right? When you show up with your human spectrum, like we said, sexuality, aggression, anger, sadness, your integrated masculinity, your softness, your lightness, your sense of direction, your sense of purpose. That is the presence that that child experiences from you because you have unlocked that within yourself. So your human connection that you offer in that moment is made of that spectrum. It's like a rainbow, right? Which colors of the rainbow have you unlocked in yourself? Have you have the reds, the yellows, the greens, the blues? Or, do you only, or haven't you tapped into the greens? Mm -hmm. Haven't you tapped into softness? Maybe you haven't tapped into the reds, the sexuality. Maybe there's only blue and yellow left. So what that child can resource from is only then the blue and yellow, right? And so that's, that's something people find confusing. Um, 
when they think about, well, my mom gave me attention. Well, my dad gave me attention, so I should have turned out fine. Well, what type of attention, what qualities, what colors did that attention have? Because if you only got blue and yellow, did she also tell you how to be a sexual being, a light being, a gentle being? That's the kind of attention that the child starts to model towards because of co-regulation, right? Co-regulation is the way that we regulate our, each other and attune to each other in an emotional way. Depending on what emotional spectrum you have unlocked in yourself, that is the gift that your presence gives give to the other person in that moment. So you as a father, that you have unlocked all these qualities, when you become a father, Christian, you will be able to give all those qualities to your son because your presence includes all those qualities. Mm. So when I say, what can you do with children and what can you do with this? It's working on yourself. It's really unlocking those colors of the rainbow within yourself, those human aspects within yourself, which then turns into a healing, powerful presence that, where that child can really feel the bandwidth of, your, of the different parts of your presence. Are they supported only when they are uh, writing good grades? Are they, as the woman, only getting attention when she's dressing herself up in a pretty way? Um, are they only getting attention through achievement? Are they only getting attention um, when they are a victim and crying? That shows in that moment that the child only gets the attention that they desperately need, only get the connection to the caretakers that they need in that very specific aspect. And let's say it's writing good grades. When the child's nervous system feels, I feel connection to my parents only when I'm successful. What happens to that nervous system? That nervous system starts to be become biased towards that particular state because that particular state is connected to connection to the parents and the other states are not connected. So it's like, almost like a garden with so many different flowers and you're standing in that garden and your parents have only watered the roses and there's other beautiful flowers, blue flowers, yellow flowers, giant flowers and they're all wilting all wilting because the parents only water one type of flower. This is tragic. This is the tragedy of human connection and human attention that when we haven't done the work, we haven't unlocked our humanity, haven't embodied our full spectrum of who we are, how we pass that on to our children. That's a generational trauma. Mm -hmm. That's how it's passed. And the, and the children desperately crave that connection in the presence of the parent. Mm -hmm. And the parent has only unlocked a sliver of who they are. Mm -hmm. And that's passed on, and that's passed on, mm -hmm. and that's passed on. And most parents don't even consciously do that. I would say most parents shouldn't even have kids, right? When in, in the world right now, we haven't even done enough work on ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny, the people who have done work on themselves, they go, I don't know if I want to bring a kid into this world. Mm -hmm. So that's the irony. But the presence really resonates with me. Um, and giving that to the child. Because I can think of, I can think of someone that I worked with, a very successful person, right? Multi-billion dollar company, billion. Mm -hmm. And it was, 
it was joy and flowers on success. You, you, you were top of your class. You got into this college. You were valedictorian of that college. Oh, you started your business. You raised your first million. This is, this is a celebration. But what about when that person is vulnerable? You know, how about when that kid is angry? You know, where's the attention? Where's the connection? Mm. So what I'm hearing from you is, as parents, the biggest gift, even if you've done no work on yourself, that we can give children is presence in every one of their states and connection in every one of their states. Whether the child is throwing a tantrum, being with them and connected. Whether the child is getting good grades, being with them and connected mm -hmm. and everything in between, huh? Yeah, and you can't even do, you cannot do it when you have not felt that state, allowed that state to expand in your body and regulated that state and have a relationship with anger or sexuality. Now let's chat about something crucial, that is omega-3s. You know I'm all about keeping clean and pure when it comes to products, as well as food on my plate. But when it comes to supplements, right, we have to make sure we have the best of the best, but especially when it comes to omega-3s. And, and I really mean it. Omega-3s are some of the most adulterated supplements that exist out there. And a lot of companies aren't doing it right. We need omega-3s for our heart, for our brain, for our eye health. You might not be getting enough nutritionally. When it comes to Peori, it's a quality brand, not only just with Omegas across their whole line. They're extremely transparent. Every batch undergoes rigorous testing against over 200 contaminants, and you could check the results for yourself. And that's one of my favorite things. You can scan the QR code and look at the batch that is right in front of you that is on your shelf or on your counter, and you can see the results for this quality testing. Peori's O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil delivers a potent dose of EPA and DHA without any unnecessary extras. Now, Peori is offering 20% off of their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil, the one that I take every single morning, and all their fantastic products to you, the Heal Thyself listener. That's 20% off even the already discounted subscription price. I want you to go to Peori.com. Use my promo code DRG. That's P-U-O-R-I dot com slash DRG to take care of your health with some of the best omegas out there by Peori. These days... These days, it seems like everyone is carrying on a beverage, whether it's soda or flavored water, or kombucha, or coffee or tea. But not all beverages are created equal when it comes to quality and health benefits. That is why I become obsessed with Peaks Sun Goddess Matcha. I've been using this for, it's one of the first supplements I really invested in. It's four years ago, probably. And it's not just any old matcha powder. We're talking organic ceremonial grade matcha tea that has been meticulously screened for pesticides, heavy metals, mold, and even radioactive isotopes. Peak takes no shortcuts. Their matcha is cultivated by ninth degree tea masters in Kagoshima, Japan, using century old traditions. Their plants are shaded for 35% longer than usual to maximize the production of vital compounds like L-theanine for calm, steady energy and chlorophyll for its detoxifying anti-aging properties. I start every morning with a frothy cup of sun goddess matcha, not just for energizing my body, you know, we all want to get that caffeine kick, yeah, okay, but for the amazing gut health, metabolism boosting, and antioxidant benefits. The phytonutrients nurture my digestive system, the EGCG compounds help my body burn calories efficiently, and the chlorophyll gives my skin the awesome reading. You see I'm going right now, right? That's because of the matcha. There's perfectly proportioned packets that are easy to mix with water whenever I need to pick me up, so easy to make a consistent self-care ritual. Peak is offering you, the Heal Thyself listener, 15% off of their sun goddess matcha plus a free beaker and a rechargeable frother when you go to peaklife.com drg they're so confident that you're going to love it there's even a 30-day money-back guarantee no code at checkout just go to p-i-q-u-e-l-i-f-e.com slash drg you're going to get 15 percent off plus all those freebies when you don't have that relationship you cannot give it to your child 
you can't fake it. Mm. You, know, you cannot, you can't. Right. And so it really begins, you know, with yourself. So it's our responsibility, like you said. It's our responsibility then to really connect, regulate our emotions, flex, make our nervous system flexible enough that we can allow in the full expression of who we are. Mm-hmm. I always say, even if it's not connection, children, from the corner of their eye or the corner of their heart, they see mom is okay with anger. And mom has mm-hmm. a healthy relationship with anger. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I, make, I can express that. If I'm, if I'm her daughter, I as a woman can express that anger. Mm-hmm. If, I'm a, if I'm her son, I only want a woman in my life to date and to marry who's comfortable with her expression of anger. Mm. These are just the pieces of like the femininity and masculinity that we learn. We model ourselves, like you said. So what a beautiful thing to really think just about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we talked about sexuality. We talked about some anger and sadness. We talked about aggression. Um, is there any... Anything that is really important to you that people need to be understanding yeah. uh, when it comes to emotions, when it comes to regulation, when it comes to how they can tap into their own power. Is mm-hmm. there anything that really is important for you to put out to the audience? I think the most powerful emotional force that people should know about is one particular emotion, and that is shame. Shame is incredibly powerful, incredibly destructive. Shame is the emotion of self-destruction. And why do I say that? It's because culturally we learned how to deal with shame is, is so destructive. If you look at Japan, there they have a cultural expression of how they deal with shame. And the way they deal with shame, what they do when they have damaged their own honor, is they kill themselves. They rather destroy their sensory nervous system than to be exposed to an affect. Can you imagine that? Rather than being exposed to a sensory input of shame, they end their lives because it's so harsh to deal with shame. Whenever you had shame in your life, you know, everyone can relate to this. You had that awkward situation with somebody. You said something really stupid and you have that thought and it's just like this really disgusting ball of heaviness in your stomach. And you have this, if it's really strong, uh, and the shame is occurring in that moment actually, You almost feel like you want to sink into the earth. You want to just disappear. That's the following the impulse of shame. It's self-destruction. So shame is an emotion that is present within all of us and that is hindering the expression of, our, of the rest of our emotions, of our emotional spectrum. Shame, is, um, shame forms a boundary, what we say. When I ask you to sit here and be like, hey, Christian, be really childlike, be stupid. Most people are like, okay, it feels <laughs> kind of awkward to do that. That's shame. Shame is being triggered and you don't want to feel shame, so you push it down. Mm. But, most, but most people who are unaware of shame do, it even, do something even worse. If you have a problem with that type of expression, 
and I now start start doing it, and there's people and you you what and you care about what they think, you're gonna say, David, stop sitting, stop stop doing all these monkeying around, be serious, be professional, because it's important to you. But actually, it's coming from a place of shame. You have you feel shame about this particular type of expression, and that simply means shame means that whatever is connected to that shame is unlovable. So it's the antithesis of human connection. And it's the emotion of self-destruction. And when we understand shame, then shame becomes a doorway to our liberated self, to our human potential, to the expression of all the colors and ranges that we are. And so mastering shame is really mastering humanity. When you can allow for a full spectrum to be there, when you can allow shame to surface in the body, if you can expand it in the body and allow it to arise, whenever the shame boundary is triggered, it could be when you burp, it could be when you're breathing loud, it could be whenever, it could be any expression, dancing or saying something stupid. Whenever you, instead of repress that type of behavior, but actively seek out uncomfortable behaviors, that trigger that shame, then you can slowly transform shame and shame stops controlling you and you start to deem parts of you that are unlovable as lovable and accepted again. And that is the same thing as increasing the range of your nervous system into different emotional states. Mm. Shame is the, the first boss, the guardian that is holding you back from everything. Mm. That's what I, that's the way I visioned the boss, yeah, the, the boss, the final boss, the yeah. final boss. Exactly. Excuse, I love you, Shane. Thank you for being here, protecting me. I feel you, I accept you. Mm-hmm. But now go to lunch. I'm ready to step into all of the things. And how many of us feel awkward? Everyone at some point about something in their day, and even more triggered. You know what I notice is I see someone with so little shame being themselves. Mm-hmm. And I go, how is this possible for a human to exist like this? Mm-hmm. Right? That person just burps when they want, yells. They don't, I'm like, they do not give a damn about no one. Yeah. Right? But, but the irony is that I want more. I want to be by this person more. What do you, what's your practice? I want, what are you eating? What's making you feel so open? Mm-hmm. How, do, how are you raised? Right? Mm-hmm. But really, what I'm starting to understand is that's just, their shame volume has turned really low. And they're expressing themselves in their full spectrum. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, mm. and this is, this is so interesting because we all know these experiences, we all have that, and we're like in an epidemic of shame. As a society, as humanity as a whole, we're in an epidemic of shame. Why is that? Why are we suffering from this weird emotion that's not allowing us to be fully human? A dog doesn't feel shame. A dog feels guilt, but doesn't feel shame. Like a dog feels guilt for doing things, but it, it's, not, it's not scratching its identity, you know? And so animals, they're just like barking and doing whatever they want to do. They express themselves. And, um, but we humans, we are so cognitive and so controlled in our expression and in our identity. Why are we suffering from this? And I discovered that it has an evolutionary purpose. The purpose of shame is it creates a tribal adhesion. So it helps the formation of tribes so you could see the tribe as an as an as a person as an identity as a as an ego itself 
So when a tribe has shame, or let's say a tribe doesn't, let's say a tribe doesn't have shame, there is no boundary of what is accepted by the group and what isn't. When you're surviving out in the jungle and everything's a threat, there needs to be a force that holds a tribe together, not just love and light, you know, <clears throat> but an, an evolutionary force. And, and as something in the nervous system that connects us, that communicates to our system, this behavior is okay. Like we are the tribe of the red colors and, and we like to hunt deer. But what we don't do is we kill other people or we, we don't um, hunt when the, moon, the full moon is out. And so there's rules in those tribes, right? And when you violate those rules, you need to be able to feel as a social animal, a human is a social animal, we need to be able to have an embodied sense of that is not okay. Mm. That's shame. Shame is simply the embodied sense of the social contract that we created together of what is accepted and what is not accepted. And that helped us when we are forming tribes to bring people together who have the same value system, same type of identity, to keep them together and, 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 and help them to stay together. And rejecting, and that's the feeling of rejection that, we suffer, that humans suffer from today, is the feeling of shame and deep, deep, deep pain they feel, almost visually, I was rejected, I was pushed away. In tribal times, that means you died because you were alone. Mm -hmm. Or your parents reject you, that means you die. So that's why shame feels existential. It doesn't feel surface level. It doesn't feel like, oh yeah, shame doesn't matter. No, it's existential. It's connected with fear. We have fear of shame, right? Our system is repressing it and we're afraid even of the shame itself. And so that's why it's an existential process of being so, 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 so afraid mm. of that emotion. But it's there because it creates social adhesion. It creates a social contract in our society that says these behaviors are okay and these are not okay. But we never questioned who is determining what is okay and what is not okay. Well, our shame is determining what is not okay. If I take off my clothes now, we together feel as a, as a society or as a collective here, sitting here as a tribe, that this feels awkward. When I, this is inappropriate. This feels weird. Well, there's an embodied sense that's keeping me from doing that. Mm. There we go. Shame. Mm. Thank you, shame, for keeping me in the norm of what is expected of us. Interesting. Interesting because then you think about the tribal, that's those really social constructs are weaved in for the survival of that tribe. But now we think about nationalism in America or even just in California. Mm -hmm. Here are all the things that are acceptable. It seems to me that there's a lot more things that are unacceptable than acceptable, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a, it seems to me that you can't just be yourself, even if it's not hurting anyone, because yeah. that's unacceptable, right? Exactly. The social constructs, to me, are so much more different than the tribal ones, right? Yes. It's not socially acceptable to pass gas or burp, even if you have that instinct to, yeah. do, the, to do it, right? You know, what's that person doing? What a, oh, yeah. my God, right? Um, it's socially unacceptable to, as a man, to wear something that 
that, that resonates with you that a woman would wear. Yeah. Right? Well, oh my God, what is going on with that person? What are yeah. the labels? So to me, it's, it's, it's so much more even constricted as yeah. we grow as a society into more a national view. And it's become, it's become even more interwoven, even more sticky and unclear exactly. with the whole social progressive movement. It's not okay to be conservative. If, some, if your movement says that other expressions of humanity are not okay, you're running a movement of shame. If someone else has, the, has a clear idea of masculinity is this way and femininity is that way, and you shame them for their ideas, well, you're running a movement of shame. You're perpetuating a system that says, this is okay and this is not okay. And so what I'm attracted to is a movement that allows all shapes and all expressions of humanity to be okay. And of course, there are you know, expressions, conservative expressions that are pushing people out because there's racism in it and discrimination in it. But we cannot fight discrimination by using shame to fight discrimination. We can only fight discrimination by allowing the underlying repressed aspects of humanity to surface and to bring that which was unlovable back into the light again, into the make it lovable again. Mm -hmm. And that includes working on ourselves, working on our shame, and giving that permission that you are allowed to be conservative, you are allowed to even be racist, you are allowed to hold your ideas. Mm -hmm. But I will accept you anyway. It doesn't matter, it has nothing to do with what you should be allowed to do legally, but from the human connection standpoint, giving you that permission to fully be who you are with your shadows, with your ugliness, and with your weirdest and twisted ideas, that is the true definition of unconditional love. And not only that, it's the force that will liberate societies and help them to evolve to a place where we can live in more harmony and peace with each other. Mm. Showing up with unconditional love, accepting people in all of their shadows and all of their light. Mm -hmm. Instead of fighting their shadows with your shadows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That ain't doing anything. Yeah. You're doing just shadow boxing it. You're just shadow boxing, <laughs> but, uh, but the allowance. And, and before we really wrap this up, well, you mentioned shame as that force, and it's still sticking with me. A lot of people confuse shame and guilt. What's mm -hmm. the difference between shame and guilt? Yeah, so... So guilt, like I said, you can understand as the force of our unintegrated instincts. It's the relationship to our unintegrated instincts. That's guilt, when you're in, in, in touch with that. Working through guilt will integrate your instincts, your desires, your sexuality, your needs. Shame is an identity emotion because it's connected to the identity we have in a tribe. It, it goes deeper in humans. It's more existential for humans. We um, become, when we do something bad, that's guilt. But when we become bad, that's shame. So shame is internalized 
much, much, much deeper. Mm. And that's why you were correct in saying it's the final boss. Because it is the final boss of emotions. Final when boss. you're ready to walk through that door, you know, Bowser on the other side, the final boss, shame is waiting for you. Yeah. But also your potential and your full spectrum of your humanity. Mm. And, then, and then you're just showing up in the world as who you are, giving permission to others, right? They see that and they go, I want that. Mm. I want more of that. I mean, that's how you heal the world, right? Mm -hmm. Just by being yourself. Mm -hmm. Man, this could be a three-hour conversation because <laughs> I have a whole other thing that I want to unlock, but I don't know if we have to wait till you come back here. You'll be back in L.A., right? For sure, man. Okay. I got to come back for Erewhon, man. Oh, man, this guy loves <laughs> Erewhon you, all of a sudden. <laughs> Not for me, but Erewhon. What a pleasure it is to have one of my wonderful teachers, man, um, and, and hearing your, your truth. You speak mm -hmm. your truth. Truly, to the world, is uh, already healing a lot of people, but going to heal many more. And it's an honor to have you here talking about the very frequency and resonance of the things that I love talking about. We didn't get to talk about fascia, but I'm going to talk about it in my little segment. So, viewers and listeners, you're going to go get all the fascia you ever needed. Um, but we'll have you back very soon, brother. Amazing. All Thank right. you. It was an honor being here and awesome conversation and holding space for this knowledge to flow through me. And, and oh, before we close, how do people find you? You can go to my website on emotionalreleases.com or check out my Instagram and there you'll find trainings, our foundations training, mm. trains people to develop that human connection that can heal other people. And yeah, that's it. Everything you training. ever needed. Go to emotionalreleases.com. It's right? a global psychosomatic movement. And, and it's blowing up. And I'm right there with you, brother. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Fascia, fascia, fascia. Fascia is so important to understand what the heck it is. Because when we know what the fascia does, we understand where emotions are suppressed and repressed, and we understand how to begin healing them. This is the most incredible tissue in the whole body. Why? Well, first of all, we need to understand what fascia is. Fascia is the webbing, the saran wrap of our whole body. There is not a part of our body, organs, muscle, nerves, blood vessels, bones, that are not being touched by the fascia. The fascia is intimately touching and connected to our whole body. Fascia is the key to understanding our emotional health translated to physical health. Why? First and foremost, I want you to do this. Put your hands on the side of your leg. And I want you to poke at your thigh, the side of your thigh. And you feel that really tight, for most of us, really tight, fibrous piece of tissue, right? A lot of us think that's just our muscle, right? That's our thigh. No, we have a piece of fascia there called the IT band. And that band is a piece of fascia that is dense and fibrous. If we think about fascia, Think about massages. You know when you have a, uh, a trigger point, right? Or a big, big knot in the muscle or a, a, a part in the body that really hurts when you push down and then they push on it and then it radiates. Another part of the body's felt. That's fascia. Fascia is essentially just the webbing of the body. Now, for a long time in medicine, we thought that that's what it did. It just kept us together. It, it held our muscles. It allowed our muscles to glide, be lubricated. Oh my God, it is so much more than that. It is so much more complex than that. It is so much more intelligent than that. Our fascia 
is everything when it comes to our health. Our fascia is the most highly sensitive tissue in our whole body. It has the most amount of sensory nerve input. Why? Fascia is intimately connected to our environment. Fascia is the tissue that connects us to our environment to make sure that it is safe. So here's what happens when fascia is exposed to physical or emotional trauma. It's the same thing to the fascia. When the fascia senses, and I'll go back to the word senses, senses that the environment is unsafe, it distorts. And that distortion is an incredible mechanism in the body. Imagine a shirt just being twisted around your finger, right? It distorts, right? And it pulls on other parts of it and you feel it. You feel it as tension. But that distortion, that message of distortion is communicated to the cell. The fibroblast cell of the fascia gets that signal of distortion. And here's the most incredible thing about the fascia. It's not just one cell floating in a matrix. It is a connection. It is a network. It is the internet of the body. And the fascia, when one cell is connected to another cell, as it is connected to another cell, they're connected by these microtubule-associated proteins. And what this does, it allows the signal to be transmitted from one part of the body to the other, to the furthest part in quantum time. What does this mean? What is this, sci-fi? No. This means that the signal in the fascia is electromagnetic, not electric, electromagnetic. Electric impulses and signals, say for example, if I go and I see a coffee on a table, immediately my, my vision, my sight, that signal of light hits my eye and it turns into an electrical signal through my optic nerve into my brain and my brain says coffee. And that happens at the speed of light but electromagnetic is faster than the speed of light. So what that means is that your fascia is so incredibly sensitive, and they've done studies on this. We've seen it in animals and humans that the fascia carries an anticipatory aspect. We call this intuition, right? Before the trauma unfolds, physical or emotional, the fascia is already responding to the sensation, the sensory environment. Incredible. So say, for example, you grew up with an abusive father, right? Your father comes home, he's an angry person, and he may, he may drink, he may be verbally abusive, he may be physically abusive. You're going to feel in your fascia the environment before your dad even starts yelling. You're going to feel the environment even before you see your dad in the eyes or look him in the face. You're going to feel the quote-unquote energy. That's the environment that's being picked up by the fascia transmitted to your nervous system, connecting to the emotional centers of the brain, connecting emotion to the environment. This is where your emotions are held. Your emotions are held and repressed in the fascia through distortions in the fascia. So your body has memory that this place, person, thing, situation, or circumstance is not safe. So every time you go into a place that reminds you of a place where you had a trauma, guess what's activated? Your fascia. Guess what becomes tense? Your fascia. And guess what's responding? The nervous system signal to your brain, giving you the emotional connection to the space, and this is where you begin to feel fear or more emotions. And the emotions that are repressed and held in that fascia become activated, and this is where you begin to feel. Incredible 
human design by some incredible, intelligent designer, designee, whatever it is. So really important for us to understand, okay, my fascia is distorted. Uh, how do I heal my fascia? Well, a few things that we need to really know. If we have suppressed emotions, we have to get through those protective mechanisms through co-regulation and safety to come back and re-meet parts of ourselves as anger, shame, guilt, sexual repression, sadness, whatever it is. Okay, but also things that we can already start doing is beginning to work on our fascia physically. It won't be as deep, but at least getting into something like myofascial release. Get yourself some fascial release balls. You can go on Amazon and type in uh, fascial release or fascial balls. Um, the ones that I have, I don't remember the name, but it's just a pair of big one, lacrosse ones, uh, jointed ones together that are two fused lacrosse balls, a little triangle. And what I do is I put them on places where I feel pain, the most pain in my body, throughout my spine, the side, the muscles on the side of my spine, certainly my lats where I hold a lot, um, my traps sometimes I hold a lot, definitely the back of my legs or the sides of my legs, and I think I hold the most in my stomach. Not coincidentally, I am predisposed to having stomach issues, right? Because that's where I hold a lot of the fear and the anger, where most of us do, but I have some. Anyway, uh, rolling the ball, and what you'll notice is you have a tremendous amount of sensation, right, in the form of pain. And you'll feel it and you'll feel it and you'll breathe into it and you'll melt into it, you melt into it, and then you'll have this breath where you go, ah, and you'll feel your fascia just release. And it's a beautiful feeling. Now, whether that's permanent, it, I can't say. Uh, what I do feel is in that moment, it's very uh, cathartic and releasing. Not many emotions show up for me, it's just very relaxing. Uh, for the cathartic part, the emotional part, you need a deeper emotional release. But regardless, that's a way to get start to get it going. So fascial, myofascial release balls are really important. Now, I want to talk about the physical side of emotions. Your fascia is intimately connected with your nervous system. Intimately. I mentioned the emotional centers in the brain. The nervous system, as you'll remember when I talked about autoimmune disease a few shows ago, the brain, the central nervous system, is highly, 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 highly determinant. It's the determiner of your immune system. Your immune system is intimately connected to the nervous system. When your brain is activated in a fear response, right, or when your brain is activated in an anger response or shame or guilt, it's increasing inflammation in the body. It's increasing your sensitivity to cortisol, but also, also, what it's doing is it's inhibiting the function of the immune system. Your central nervous system is, determines how your immune system is functioning. Your central nervous system determines how your immune system reacts to pathogens. Your central nervous system determines how much inflammation is in the body. So let's understand one thing. Fascia, talking to the central nervous system, and central nervous system back to the fascia, but fascia to the central nervous system, central nervous system to the immune system. So imagine what something like fear, shame, guilt, anger, grief, sadness, what that does, that signal to the nervous system and that nervous system signal, the brain, to the immune system. And then we start thinking about, okay, what is the role of emotions in autoimmune disease? Because as a professional, I can see more than anything clinically, even before I took off my white coat and really started teaching and then going into this emotional stuff, everyone, so many people who've developed autoimmune disease, and I put up this post and so many people agreed, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments, 
my autoimmune disease started after blank, this stressful event, right? The psychoneuroimmunology practice, the study of it, shows the connection between that stress and your immune system. If you suffer with autoimmune disease, you may remember there, there was an event that preceded it. So let's think about what does that stress do in the body, in the fascia, to the nervous system, to the immune system. Very important to understand that shame and guilt influence inflammation in the body. They increase cytokines, those inflammatory proteins. They increase our sensitivity to stress. We know in studies with children, right, who've, who've grown up in homes that have trauma, have 60% minimum, really 70% and up, uh, predisposition to autoimmune disease, right? Hospitalizations. We know that children who grow up in an environment that is unsafe have increased amount of inflammation 20 plus years later, which is incredible. Why? Well, one, if you grow up in an environment that is unsafe, and you're living in stress all the time, you have increased levels of inflammation because your response to cortisol, the anti-inflammatory effects of cortisol acutely are turned off, and now you're responding to the long-term cortisol levels, which become inflammatory. There is a predisposition for substance abuse, alcohol, smoking, substance abuse. There's a predisposition towards obesity increasing. Think about, this is incredible. If you think about the environment not being safe, our body's going to want to consume more calories and hold in more calories for our survival. So think about the epigenetic change that happens when we have an unsafe environment. We eat more, i.e. stress eating, and we hold in that stress in our adipose cells to hold in that energy to keep us alive because we don't know when we're going to be eating because there is stress outside in this environment. So obesity inevitably leads to more inflammation. We also see early gut dysbiosis in children who grow up in homes that are unsafe. So that gut dysbiosis through the vagus nerve gives a signal to our brain, the brain to our immune system, increasing inflammation, right? So you see it keeps playing in. Reduced sleep for people who've suffered uh, childhood trauma, even 20 years later. Poor sleep, poor sleep habits, right? Not taking care of their body. All of these things are funneling to the same thing, inflammation. And when people say inflammation is the root of all disease, I would actually go a few steps back. I would actually say trauma, repressed emotions, lack of authentic expression, fascia are all going to be rooted in the disease before inflammation manifests. So it stands to believe we have to work on a deeper level. We have to work on the emotional level to understand what inflammation does and to understand how inflammation is going to lead to disease. We're talking downstream. Once we see the physical manifestation, that's downstream. We gotta go upstream and really start talking about how to help people authentically when it comes to emotion. These are the most important concepts that you can possibly have as a guidebook into being a human, into being your highest self, into being healthy. And hopefully you hear it and it resonates and it starts making massive changes to who you are to step into your authentic self. 